God. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. 1 Peter, chapter number 5. And our text this morning is found in verse number 10. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 10. Peter writes, But the grace, the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. I wish I had time this morning to speak more about the people and the purpose for which Peter wrote these words. I do, however, want to take time to give you a few highlights that will hopefully give you a greater understanding of and appreciation for our text. Peter was writing to believers living under great hardships. They had been persecuted, driven from their homes, uprooted from their security, scattered abroad, separated from their loved ones. And in addressing these people, speaking in regards to their needs, Peter speaks of the one thing that relates to everything, and that is the subject of grace. I want you to notice how he started this letter all the way back in chapter 1 and the second verse, and just the last part of the verse. Notice that he begins this letter by saying, Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. He starts the letter that way, And then go back to chapter 5 and notice what leads up to our text. Look at verse number 5, for example. He says in verse number 5, in the very last part of it, that God resisteth the proud, but notice, He giveth grace to the humble. Now look at verse number 7, casting all your care upon Him. For he careth for you. Think about how that must have impacted those people when they read this letter. No doubt these people, having seemingly lost everything that was dear to them here on earth, separated from the people that meant the most to them, in this horrible situation they receive the letter from Peter assuring them of God's concern, telling them to cast all of their care upon the Lord because God cares about them. I want you to, I want you to realize even whenever the whole world goes out, God comes in. That God cares about you even when it seems like no one else does. Understand that the grace of God is for you. It is not against you. It is with you. It's not something that is afar off. It is able, not helpless. It's helpful, not harmful. It's free, not something that you earn. When you look in the Bible, you find that 
it gives us many titles for God, and each one is designed to give us counsel or comfort or courage. For example, the Bible speaks about God as being the Father of mercies. It speaks about God as being the God of all comfort. It says that He is the God of peace. It calls Him the God of hope, the God of salvation. But notice here, it speaks about Him as the God of all grace. You can't really give serious thought to life unless you think about God. And when you think about God, naturally that brings several things to mind. We think about God's wonderful works, and we go all the way back to the very beginning, where God, with nothing but the spoken word, spoke the world, all of the universe, into existence. And so we could rejoice this morning in all of God's wonderful works. We could think about God's precious promises that the Bible says are exceeding great. Precious promises that we rely upon each and every day of our life. We can talk about God's lasting love. The fact that He has promised that nothing shall ever separate us from His love. We can talk about God's marvelous mercy. The fact that God in His mercy withholds what we deserve in the form of punishment. But whenever we come down to our text here, we see that our focus is on the greatness of God's grace. And nothing is more amazing than grace, even though we cannot fully understand it, even though we cannot explain it. Grace has been called the greatest word in all of the Bible. And I tend to agree, if I try to explain it, or describe it, there seems to be no end to the things that I could say, and yet no way that I can adequately explain it. I fail before I even begin. In fact, sometimes I feel that the more I try to explain grace, the more I distract from its beauty. And yet there's something within me that compels me to try to explain what God's grace is. Once you've experienced it, you want everybody to know about it. And that's what we're going to see later on when we get down to verse number 12. But if we try to describe grace, all we can say basically is that it is God's unmerited favor. It is His unconditional love. It is His undeserved kindness. It's receiving what we need, although we do not deserve it. Something that we do not deserve, something that we cannot earn, something that we cannot win, something that we cannot purchase, and by the way, it's something we can never pay back. Indeed, we are debtors to grace, but we can never pay grace back because there's no way for it to be pure grace that we can ever obligate God, as it were. Remember, grace has to do with that which flows from the higher to the lower. 
In other words, grace is like gravity. It always is going downward. It comes from the infinite, inexhaustible source of God. Notice He is the God of all grace. We think about grace and automatically, you know, we can't wrap our mind around it. We can't do anything to fully explain it and it just... We come to the conclusion, well, it just seems like something that is too good to be true. And because of that, some folks are reluctant to believe it and to receive it. I'd rather look at it from the vantage point that God's grace is too good to not be true. And I say that simply because the mind of man cannot possibly conceive of such a thing. You see, we tend to think that we need to do something to appease the wrath of God, that we need to do something to gain the favor of God, that we need to do something that's going to obligate God so that in doing so that He must come to our aid in a time of need. But grace throws all of that out the window. Grace will have nothing to do with any of that because grace flows freely ever downward to supply what is needed and never deserved. We could talk for hours about the greatness of God's grace, but I want you to focus this morning on our text. I want you to understand just from our text what Peter has to say about it what is stated and implied, and there are five things that he wants us to know about the God of all grace. First of all, the God of all grace enables us to enter into his glory. Look at the very first part of verse number 10. He says, the God of all grace, now notice, hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Someone wrote a song entitled, Were It Not For Grace. And let me tell you, were it not for grace, there would be no Savior given. There would be no forgiveness of sin possible. There would be no deliverance from hell. There would be no hope of heaven. And there wouldn't be any help with our struggles while we're here upon this earth. It's the grace of God that enables us to enter into, notice, it doesn't just say into glory, but we enter into His glory. And it is an eternal glory. And all of that is because of grace. You see, that's the one thing that separates Christianity from all of the religions of this world. All of the worldly religions depends upon something that man does, but true salvation depends only upon what God does. It's all by grace. It's never by works. You can't do anything to help God save you. The very fact that you would even try to do something that is going to appease His wrath and gain His favor and obligate Him, in in the very fact that you're trying to do that, you destroy the bridge that you must cross over, which is pure, unadulterated grace. You can't add to it. 
It's what God does. And God enables us to enter into His glory. And there's no other way. Not only does it enable us to enter into His glory, but it enlarges our expectations. It's so sad to see so many people living today without any hope. To see them wrestling with all of their problems, struggling. So many people that are enslaved by sin, mired down in the pit of depression. People that are living without any hope. And I've got good news for those folks. And that is the fact that the grace of God enlarges our expectations. Notice in verse number 10, he says, Not only has he called us unto his eternal glory, but notice it says, After that ye have suffered... A while. You, you see, we rejoice in the glory that is to come. But before that glory, there is grief. Job said, man that's born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. There's no way that we can escape the problems, the troubles, and the trials of this world. It's a tough place to live. The Lord himself said, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Thank God for that. And it's God's grace that gets us through it. Notice, he says, speaking about what God's going to do, that it's after. Notice, after. Not before, but after that you have suffered, and thank God for these next words, suffered a while. We must suffer. There's no getting around that. That's all a part of the privilege of living here upon the earth. All a part of the privilege of being here in our human bodies. We're going to suffer, but only for a while. You you see, you and I will never suffer one minute more than what is necessary. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, why is suffering even necessary? It's necessary because we're in training for reigning. The Bible says that if we suffer suffer with Him, we shall also reign with Him. And it's so wonderful to know that whatever it is that we're going through, regardless of how bad or regardless of how good, the best is yet to come. We know that. We have the assurance of that fact. And that's why we live in hope. Grace increases. It enlarges our expectations. We don't have to live in doubt and in fear because we know that in the end the grace of God is going to prevail. Not only does the God of all grace enable us to enter into His glory, Not only does He enable us to enlarge our expectations, but notice again in verse number 10, we see that the God of all grace equips us to endure. Now, notice there are four words I want you to notice. God does not exempt us from suffering, but He equips us for it. In other words, the one who saves us, sanctifies us through our struggles, through those difficulties. And that's why we have to suffer in this world, because God is developing us for the age to come. 
And grace brings gain. In other words, it's the very thing that causes all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord, who are the called according to His purpose. He's training and preparing us. But notice there are four words showing how God, through His grace, equips us. These are metaphors. Someone called them our survival kit for suffering. Now, each one of these words are very similar, but each one provides just a, a bit of difference that we need. It's sort of the difference between making a line drawing and, uh, and taking that very same picture that is a mere line drawing and starting to put the shading, the shadows, and it makes all of the difference in the world because all of a sudden, we see in in another dimension a picture of what we're looking at. And, and God, in using these four different words, wants us to look at these various shades of grace, showing why we can cast all of our care upon Him, why we can depend upon Him, why that our, our expectations can be enlarged as a result of it. If, if you would, fellas, just turn the, the lapel mic off and switch me over to the pulpit mic, and I think that will get rid of that noise. The first one of these words that Peter uses is the word perfect. This comes from a Greek word that means complete or fit. It means to mend or to repair. It's not talking about the fact that here in this life that we become sinless. We, we know that in this world there's no such thing as sinless perfection. That's in the world to come. But for now, we all struggle with our shortcomings. This word back in the day in which Peter lived was used in reference to several different things. It might be used in reference to restoring Harmony between quarreling parties. It is a word that was used in reference to setting a bone that is broken or a dislocated joint. It is used in reference to repairing a vessel that has been damaged or in mending nets. It refers to a student that has matured and finally graduated and become like his teacher. You, you see, that's what God is working to do. And in God's grace, He takes all of these bad things and uses them for a good purpose in your life. So what, what you would, you know, of your own Volition, never choose for yourself. God, seeing the need in your life, chooses for you, and He puts you in the trials of affliction. He exposes you to great difficulties and fearful situations. Why? Because God is working to perfect you, to bring you to spiritual completion. The second word is the word establish. It means to fix or to confirm, to render constant. In other words, grace enables us to stand firm, to be firmly fixed in place, to remain steadfast although we're suffering, to be toughened by our trials. And this is what Peter is trying to get across to them. Remember, 
These people have been persecuted, driven from their homes. These people are in fear for their very lives, and he wants them to understand that the God of all grace is with you. He's not going to leave you. You're not going to become a victim. You're going to be victorious because of the God of all grace. And He is going to perfect you and establish you, notice, and strengthen you. That means to be made capable. It means to be enabled to meet the demands of life. And then the fourth word is the word settle. That is a architectural word that means to lay the foundation or to make stable. The idea is that God allows all of our trials to pile upon us like a mountain, a burden, something too heavy to bear. And yet in all of this, instead of destroying us, it is pushing us down, as it were, planting us firmly on the foundation beneath our feet. That's why when people go through difficult times, they come out either bitter or better. And the child of God and the will of God is going to recognize that although these are things I would have never chosen for myself, Although these are things that I could never endure in my own strength, I realize that they are by divine design. That the same one that created the world has a purpose and a plan in all of this. Not only is He going to enable me to endure it, He's going to give me victory over it and make me better for it, Because now, having experienced these trials, they are more firmly planted on the solid rock than ever before. They have now learned as a result of their experience to rely upon God rather than trusting in the flesh. That's exactly the point that Paul was making in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 9. You'll remember that going through those difficulties, he said there was a thorn in in his flesh and he went to God three times begging God to remove it. And each time God said no, but the solution for what appeared to be a problem and was something certainly painful to him and confusing in his mind The solution was what? Grace. God said, my grace is sufficient. In other words, that's another way of saying, my grace is enough. And if you read the rest of that chapter, you'll see that Paul rejoiced in all of his suffering. You don't find many Baptists like that today, do you? We tend rather to complain about it, but Paul rejoiced. In all of his trials, because he knew that God was at work in his life and that God's grace was sufficient, it would enable him to be victorious. That's why he made this statement. He said, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. In other words, when all of the props have been knocked out from under me, whenever I have no one to rely upon but God, 
It's whenever I sink so low that there's nothing beneath my feet but the firm foundation of God's work. Then that's when I'm really strong. And folks, the same thing is true of us. The God of all grace equips us to endure whatever He allows to come into our life. Not only that, but the fourth thing I want you to notice is that the grace of God excites us, enabling us to exalt Christ. Look at verse number 11. He says, To Him who? The God of all grace, right? Are you all awake? Are you with me? He says, To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, you cannot think of grace without thinking of God. We think about who He is. He's described here as the God of all grace. In other words, He is the only source. There are no exceptions. God has a corner on the market of grace. Because He is the God of all grace, He is also the God of all hope, the God of all peace, the God of all comfort. You see, everything else that God is, is the result of Him being the God of all grace. That's who He is. But then we, thinking about the grace of God, we are excited at who God is and also what God does. I love the way Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. He says that God is able to make all grace... Think about that. The God of all grace is made able to make all grace abound toward you. And we could just add a lot of things to that. We could say, you know, it's by the grace of God that we are saved. By the grace of God, we are secured. By the grace of God, we are being sanctified. By the grace of God, we are being supplied. By the grace of God, we are being strengthened. By the grace of God, we are satisfied. And we stand in this grace. This is what we depend upon. It saves us from every sin. It secures us from every danger. It supports us under every trial, strengthens us under every burden, supplies every need, serves us in every situation. There's never a time when God's grace isn't available or adequate or abounding. It's just amazing. That's why he said that this is the grace that you stand in. There's no sin that it cannot conquer. There's no suffering that it cannot soothe. There is no struggle that it cannot subdue. There is no shortage that it cannot supply. No sinner that it cannot save. No saint that it cannot satisfy and meet the needs of. Listen, and there's no source, no other source than God Himself. No wonder Peter is excited. No wonder he is thrilled at the very thought of the God of all grace being with them, enabling them. And that's why he said to Him, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How could you not be excited about it? But then I want you to notice there's something else 
I think, very important about this matter. And we come to it in in the last part of this chapter, verses 12, 13, and 14, and we notice that, that grace encourages us to encourage others. In other words, the, the God of all grace has grace for all, and it's adequate and available for whoever will receive it. And the very last verse of the Bible, Revelation twenty two twenty one, is my prayer for you this morning, where John said, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, I mention that not only because that is my prayer for you this morning. I want you to find God's grace sufficient for whatever your need is. But I want you to understand that is exactly the same way that Peter felt whenever he is writing this letter to these suffering saints. And it's obvious that he is excited about the grace of God. He has been encouraged by God's grace. And now he wants others to experience that grace. And so beginning in verse 12, he begins to, to literally name other people and, and explains the reason for his writing. Notice what he says, verse number 12. By Sylvanius, a faithful and true brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. Notice he's telling us, this is my purpose for writing to you. I want you to discover the greatness of God's grace. That's the whole point of it. And he ends up here showing that he is concerned about these people to whom he's writing. The purpose is, and the reason that he ends the letter this way, and remember, it's not Peter who is deciding what to write, but it's the Spirit of God moving upon him, telling him what to write. And he ends the letter this way because God wants you to know that people matter to him. God is interested in every individual. Amen? Grace is available for every single person, regardless of who we are or what we've done. Now, I want you to notice the practical value of this, because the church ought to be a place where God's people are in communion one with another. Let me ask you a question, a serious question. And I want you to think about how you might answer Why do you want God to deliver you from your difficulty? Why do you want God to bless you, help you, keep you? Why? Think about that. Well, you say, I want to live long enough to see my children uh, graduate. We've all got a list of things that we could mention, right? You might say, well, I've got a bucket list of things that I want to do before I die. Might not be anything wrong with the things that you mention. But let me, let me tell you what your answer ought to be. If it isn't to enable you to serve God by ministering to others, then your priorities 
your motives are wrong. You see, a lot of times we want to get out of our problems, but we don't want to get any closer to God. We want God to deliver us, but we don't really care about serving Him. And if you go back to 2 Corinthians in chapter 12 where God gives that promise that my grace will be sufficient, and you go on and you read Paul's response to that wonderful promise, you see that admission that when I'm weak, that's when I am strong. And then Paul expresses the reason why he wanted to live. He says, I'm willing to spend to be spent for you. In other words, I'm willing to burn my life out in service to other people. That ought to be our very reason for wanting God to deliver us from our trials. So many times people that are in harm's way, people that have been in dangerous situations or maybe upside down in a ditch in a car that's been wrecked or something and they think to themselves, you know, God, let me live. I, I want to see my wife one last time. I want, to, I want to embrace my children one last time. Nothing wrong with that. But let me tell you, the primary motivation for you and I wanting to live ought to be so that we can serve God by ministering to other People, you, you see, once you've experienced the grace of God, it affects the way that you relate to everybody else. The very fact that God has been gracious to me, that God gave me what I needed instead of what I deserved, the very fact that God has done what He did for me should motivate me to treat other people the same way. If I appreciate the grace of God, it ought to affect my actions toward other people. And you see, so many times we get it all backwards. So many times whenever somebody, you know, ruffles our feathers the wrong way, somebody doesn't live up to our expectations, someone disappoints us, someone even intentionally harms us, we want to go for the juggler vein. We want them to pay. Aren't you glad God doesn't operate like that? Amen. Boy, if anyone has a right to be offended, it's God. And yet, as imperfect as we are, as Jeremiah said, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. They're new every morning. And you see... Mercy and grace are two sides to God's love. Mercy withholds the judgment that we deserve, and grace gives us the blessing that we don't deserve. And God acts in grace toward us. If God only gave us what we deserve, none of us would ever be in heaven. And I'm telling you that as a Christian, because of what God has done for you, that ought to affect the way that you relate to everybody else. You have no right to be rude. You have no right to do them harm. You have no right to try to get even with them regardless of what they've done. That's not your right. 
The goodness of God led us to repentance. The grace of God gave us what we needed instead of what we deserved. And because that is the way that God treated me, that's the same way that I ought to treat you. The same way I ought to relate to everybody else. But please understand this morning that it's all due to the grace of God. I, uh, I knew what I was going to preach this morning. And I wrote a brief article. I intended to send it out this morning as the morning manna, our daily devotion. And it talks about being grateful for grace. I don't know, I might send it out in the morning, but that's not the point. The point is that whenever we think about our struggles and trials and how that God has promised us grace in our time of need, the sad thing about that is that a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that's second best. In in other words, we we start thinking, I I guess I'll just have to trust the grace of God. And in the back of our our mind, we're thinking, oh, it would be so much better if if I could just get out of this suffering, if I could just solve this problem, if God would just go ahead and meet this need, give me what I wanted and so forth. That'd be a whole lot better. But... I'll settle for grace. It'll at least get me through it. It's kind of like a life preserver. Let me tell you, whenever God subjects you to suffering and troubles and trials and difficulties that you can never understand, make no mistake about it, He's not giving you the leftovers. He's not giving you second best. Because you can improve upon the grace of God. Amen. When He gives you grace, He's giving you absolutely everything you need. And the suffering that you're going through will be no longer than what is necessary. And we can rest in the sunshine of God's promise that He will not put more on us than what we're able to bear and that He'll use everything that happens for some good, and in the end, in the end, as Paul said, all of these things are working not against us, but working for us a far more exceeding weight of what? Glory. Grief before glory and grace through it all. Let's stand. Father, how we thank You, Lord, this morning for Your amazing grace. We thank You so much, Lord, for giving us what we desperately need but certainly do not deserve. And I pray this morning if there be those here that have never been saved, those that are strangers to Your saving grace, that know nothing about the joy of having the slate wiped clean and all of those sins forgiven, Dear God, may this be the day that they would humble themselves and 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 take unto themselves your grace that saves their soul. And then, Heavenly Father, for those that have 
already been saved and they're on their way to heaven and sure to get there. And yet, even at this very moment, they're going through great difficulties. It might be something that all of the rest of us know about. And we watch them struggle and we pray for them. Or it might be something that that almost nobody else even knows about but you. Dear God, may they discover today Your grace to be sufficient for their every need. That it's not something that's just going to barely get them through it. But it's something that will work for their good and Your glory and for all of eternity. We beg it in Jesus' dear name. Bless us not because we deserve it, but because we ask it that You might be glorified as a result. Amen. Now as we sing together, as we lift our voice in song, if God's...